Let's open the scriptures first to the book of Kings, then to the Gospel of John, and thirdly to Revelation chapter 2. We begin in 1 Kings chapter 12. The subject of the preaching this afternoon is what the Word of God says about the false church. So we're going to keep an eye on that theme as we read from 1 Kings 12. We'll start at verse 25 and then into chapter 13, verse 10. Then Jeroboam, and he is the king of Israel, the northern tribes, Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom of God will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel, Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign that same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. 
So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. We'll pause there and turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. John 15, beginning at verse 18. The Lord Jesus is speaking here. And we'll go into chapter 16, verse 4. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Now, our third reading from Revelation chapter 2, final book of Scripture, reading the letter of the Lord Jesus to the church in Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 8. This is the Lord Jesus speaking, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I invite you to turn with me in the Book of Praise to page 511 where we find the Word of God summarized by the church concerning the marks of the true church and how to distinguish it from the sex and the false church. So this is our third go at this article. I want to focus particularly on the final uh, or the second last paragraph where it speaks about the false church, but to get it all in context, let's just read 
paragraph one, two, and then we'll skip over to the fourth paragraph. Starting at the top, we believe that we ought to discern diligently and very carefully from the Word of God what is the true church. For all sects which are in the world today claim for themselves the name of church. We are not speaking here of the hypocrites who are mixed in the church, along with the good and yet are not part of the church, although they are outwardly in it. We are speaking of the body and the communion of the true church, which must be distinguished from all sects that call themselves the church. The true church is to be recognized by the following marks. It practices the pure preaching of the gospel. It maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It exercises church discipline for correcting and punishing sins. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and regarding Jesus Christ as the only head. Hereby the true church can certainly be known and no one has the right to separate from it. Now just down to the fourth paragraph. The false church assigns more authority to itself and its ordinances than to the word of God. It does not want to submit itself to the yoke of Christ. It does not administer the sacraments as Christ commanded in His Word, but adds to them and subtracts from them as it pleases. It bases itself more on men than on Jesus Christ. It persecutes those who live holy lives according to the Word of God and who rebuke the false church for its sins, greed, and idolatries. These two churches are easily recognized and distinguished from each other. That's as far as our confession goes. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we return for a third and final time to Article 29. And this time we want to focus specifically on what we confess concerning this thing called the false church. Or maybe better said, we want to focus on what God's Word says about the false church. For as always, it's important to keep in mind that what the church summarizes in her confessions is not her opinion. It's simply the Word of God put together in summary form. It's what God teaches us in the Bible. And if we keep that in mind, that will keep us from falling into the trap of ignoring this confession by thinking that Article 29 is just a dated historical document or article. There certainly are people who look at Article 29 that way. They don't like what they see. They dismiss it as commentary of, on the 16th century church because it was written in 1561. And they consider Article 29 no longer relevant for today. The false church they describe, that's described here, some say, well, that's clearly a reference to the Roman Catholic Church of that time period. It no longer applies to today, so basically just forget about uh, Article 29, forget about the false church concept. Well, what do we say to that? Of course, it is true that there is a historical setting and context to all that is written here, just like there is in Scripture itself. We've noticed through the course of this series on the Belgic Confession how Guy de Debray had in mind both the Roman Catholic 
authorities and church as well as the Anabaptist sects. He's, he references or makes allusions to both parties from time to time. But that does not take away from the fact that he has set out and the church with him to summarize the Word of God. He did not set out to give a history lesson. Yes, here and there he singles out the teaching of the Anabaptists or other individuals, pointing out them out as examples of error. But the truths he gathers together and the church with him, the church has seen that and adopted this confession as its own, those truths are always the timeless truths of the Bible. And that's equally true when the Belgic Confession writes about the false church. What we confess here about the false church is not just what took place in the 16th century, but it's the false church as described in Scripture. The false church that's been there ever since the fall into sin, ever since there has been a true church over against which the devil has been attacking and gathering his own church together. So the church of every era needs to be aware of and on guard against the dangers of the false church, the dangers, in fact, of becoming the false church. And so I bring to you this word of the Lord, the false church rebels against her master but cannot prevail. We'll see that this is part of an ancient battle, but it will end on the basis of an eternal promise. It's worth recalling for a moment that here in this Article 29 there are three groups being compared. There's the true church, there's the various sects, groups that splinter off, and then there is this thing called the false church. A sect, that's just a group confessing the name of Christ, but that follows a, a particular teaching or teacher that the teaching itself does not belong to Christ. So in the course of history, you can think of groups like the Donatists, that's going back to the fourth century. Later, there were, the monk, there were monks. Donatists and monks, they had this, this in common. They went off by themselves to develop and to maintain what they called the pure church. You can think of the Anabaptists of the 16th century who emphasized separation from the world. They had kind of that same idea as the Donatists and the monks. They had to go off by themselves. You can think of the Baptists of the 17th century insisting on believers-only baptism and that children are not part of the church. Think of the Wesleyans of the 18th century emphasizing strict progress and holiness and, and meeting together in small conventicles. Or you can think of the Pentecostals and the Charismatics of the early 20th century up till today, emphasizing the need to speak in tongues, the need to practice the special miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. These are just examples of various sects that have pulled away from the true church, that pulled away from the ancient teachings of Scripture as confessed for centuries by the true church and insisting on some new doctrine. Now, in these sects, there very, may very well be many true believers, and sometimes these Christian sects resemble the church quite closely, which is why the opening sentence of our confession in that first paragraph says that we ought to discern diligently and very carefully from the Word of God what is the true church. We have work to do. 
We have to search it out because it says, for all sects which are in the world today claim for themselves the name of church. And we know that the Bible commands us to test the spirits, 1 John. Test the spirits. Do not believe every spirit, writes John, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So we take what they teach and we test it over against Scripture. And that's not always easy because the teachings sound sometimes very plausible. And the groups themselves look similar to the church, but by careful investigation, we can ascertain if the, a certain body of confessing Christians is actually listening to the voice of the shepherd in everything. That's the overarching mark of the true church. Are they following the voice of the shepherd contained in Scripture? Are they following it down the line everywhere? Now, that's the sex. Now, let's focus on the false church. The last line of Article 29, the very last sentence, these two churches, speaking of the true and the false, are easily recognized and distinguished from each other. People have stumbled over that one. They stumble over it when they look at the hundreds and hundreds of denominations that exist and they say, wait a second, it's not that easy to determine true from false. Therefore, the Belgic must be dated, out of touch, no longer relevant. But when you see that the Belgic distinguishes itself from the challenge of sorting out true church from sect, that's the first paragraph, and then toward the end of the article, true church from false church, then the stumbling block is removed. The Belgic says that true church from sect, that's a tricky business. That takes very great care to figure out because they seem so close or they can seem so close. But the other contrast, true church, false church, is easy because the difference is so great. For any church that resembles the, the marks or the description of the false church in the second last paragraph is indeed quite easy to point out and identify as false church. Well, what is then this false church? How do we identify it? On the one hand, you could say it is a kind of a sect because the false church goes after its own false teaching. But it's also different from the sects generally. That's why there's these three categories. Because the false church, as the Bible reveals it, and as we see it in history, the false church was once the true church. That's the key difference. It's what happens when the true church rebels against God, when it deforms, when it becomes corrupt. What you're left with is the false church. It becomes an imposter, a, a mere shell of itself. We see that, for example, in what we read in 1 Kings 12. We are somewhat familiar with that history because in our work through Chronicles, we've, we've noticed, we've been investigating the split between the north and the south. Well, 1 Kings 12, that has just taken place because of Solomon's unfaithfulness. Jeroboam was made king over the northern tribes, the ten tribes of the north, Israel, while Rehoboam remained king in Jerusalem. So this is right after that split, very, very early on. So all the tribes, all 12 tribes are still God's covenant people. 
All 12 tribes are still the church. What should have happened in the wake of that split is that all 12 tribes should have continued to serve the Lord according to the Word of God, according to the law of Moses. They should have all continued to go up to Jerusalem three times a year for the feasts. They should have continued to let the Levites and the priests do their work at the temple. And in the midst of that, all Israel should have been humbly praying for the reunification of the church and kingdom for the time when the 12 tribes would come back under one king from the line of David because that was God's promise. The church had been split in two, which was grievous to, to God, and yet both sides belonged to the Lord. Both sides are true church at that moment. And then Jeroboam brings in corruption. A lot of corruption. 1 Kings 12. All he can do is to think about politics, power, independence. And so, as king, he just makes a decision. He's going to set aside the commands of the Lord. He does not want his own people to feel sympathy for Jerusalem or for the house of David and Rehoboam. He doesn't want his people to consider joining them and abandoning him, even, he says, murdering him. So Jeroboam creates a whole new system of worship in the north. Jeroboam even took a page out of Aaron's book. You know, Aaron back in the desert in the days of Moses, Moses had gone up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and the people were getting restless and they said we don't know where this Moses fellow has gone why don't you make for us an idol that we can worship make for us a, a, an image of our God and he made the golden calf Aaron did remember well Jeroboam thought that was a brilliant idea so he makes two golden calves he doubles the sin and then he announces, 1 Kings 12, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I'm going to put one in the, the north, Dan, and one in the south of our country, Bethel. So it's easy access. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. Worship your gods here and here. Jeroboam establishes a copycat religion, a, a pale look-alike to what's going on at the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. He even creates a rival feast. Maybe you noticed that. A feast, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles on the 15th day of the eighth month. He sets up a rival feast in the north. Don't go south, people. It was left up to them whether, when bowing down to the calves, they'd be worshiping Yahweh or some other god. He's very general about that. But no matter how you slice it, do you see, brothers and sisters, how Jeroboam corrupted the worship of the true church. Just like we confess in that paragraph on, on, the, on the marks of the true church, Jeroboam's church, it assigned more authority to itself than to the Word of God. He just set aside the Word of God and put in his own commands. His church, Jeroboam's church, did not want to submit to the yoke of Christ. What's the yoke of Christ? Well, that's the gospel of the forgiveness of sins, which was preached where? In Jerusalem, at the one altar that God had commanded, where sacrifices were to be brought, and there, on the basis of those sacrifices, which pointed ahead to the coming Christ, 
God would grant forgiveness of sins, but you didn't get forgiven at the calf idols. You see, Jeroboam was exchanging truth for lie. He was exchanging the true gospel for the false gospel. He was basing his religion more on men than on Jesus Christ. And did Jeroboam not also persecute the true believers in his midst by calling for the arrest of the prophet of God who was sent by God to rebuke him for his sins? So this church in the north, the ten tribes, considered as a whole, of course there was true believers still, we know that, but as a whole, being God's covenant people, they had become so crooked, it was nothing more in the end than a cheap imitation of the real thing. They had just become a religion, no longer a relationship with the one true God. They just had a religion, nothing but the false church. And really, we see the same thing coming out in John 16. Maybe you want to turn with me to that chapter where the Lord Jesus speaks about these matters. John 16, page 1148. Right at the end of chapter 15, the Lord warns His disciples about coming persecution. He says, if they persecuted me, that's verse 20, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know Him who sent me. And who was it that he's referring to? Who was it that did the persecuting of Jesus? Who was it that refused to obey His teaching? Wasn't it the Jews? Wasn't it the church of His day? That becomes really clear in chapter 16, verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. They have not known the Father. This is Jews he's talking about. This is the church, the covenant people. They haven't known the Father. This describes the distressing state of affairs within the covenant community and is the overarching hallmark of the false church. They don't know God, the God they profess to know. And Jesus ran into this constantly, right? Think of his whole ministry. Priests, Pharisees, Sadducees, all of whom were promoting themselves as God's special people, but in reality, they did not know the Lord. They did not follow God. They rejected the Father specifically by rejecting the Son as Messiah. They even nailed Him to a cross. The once true church in Israel had become the false church. They had become false Israel. Or as Christ Himself will say later in Revelation 2, which we read, they have become the synagogue of Satan. That's Revelation 2. Synagogue of Satan. That's quite an expression. Synagogue of Satan. Jesus says there, they call themselves Jews, but they are the synagogue of Satan. Synagogue 
That's just the Jewish word for gathering. They gave that word to the building, very much like we give the word church to the building, although we know the church is the people. So synagogue means the same as assembly. It means the same as church. In other words, Christ is saying, Revelation 2, that it was Satan's church that was persecuting his church. No longer is God directing the lives and worship of that church. They, they had the Word of God, the Old Testament in front of them, but that wasn't guiding them. Satan had infiltrated. Satan had taken over. And in the place where there once was the true worship of God, in agreement with His Word, there now the false God is worshipped. And since Satan hates God and his Christ, so Satan's church will hate God and his Christ. And Satan's church will do what it can to oppress the true followers of Christ. Just like the ten tribes of the north did some oppressing of the Jews, and just like the Pharisees and the leaders in Jesus' day oppressed him and his disciples. What we need to have clear in our minds, brothers and sisters, is that the false church didn't just pop up one time in history in the 16th century under the guise of the Roman Catholic Church. It's been around throughout history. Satan has been busy gathering a people for himself. He's been gathering a church which worships him, and he's always been doing his best to, to steal people away from God into his own camp. You can go right back to Genesis. Think of the first family, Cain, who gave his heart over to the evil one and murdered his brother. Cain then became, later on, the, the father of the false church. The line of Cain is a degenerate line which moves away from God more and more, so much so that the line of Cain became the world. Maybe you notice that in John 15. Jesus identifies the Jewish community, the false church of his day. He calls them the world, which hates Christ and Christians. You go a little further in history. After the flood, we read of Ham, the father of Canaan, the son of Noah, who was there on the ark, who had experienced the salvation of God, the mighty salvation of God in the ark, and yet afterward turned his heart away from God and fell under God's church, the false church, which became the world. You can think of the sickening deformation and repeated deformation of the church, the Israelites, in the book of Judges. And how time again God preserved for Himself a remnant, but the main church became apostate and maintained an apostate position, worshiping God according to its own ideas. Think of the northern ten tribes. Started with Jeroboam, but it didn't stop with him. Every single king, even if it was a different line of kings, every single king onward in those northern tribes was wicked, and everyone maintained the golden calves. Everyone led Israel into sin. It was the false church which often warred against the true church in Jerusalem, but which was eventually punished and exiled and blended into the unbelieving world, never to be seen again. Right? The ten tribes are gone. And hasn't Satan kept up his insidious attack throughout history? 
after the Lord ascended into heaven, we see Satan doing all kinds of things in the church. For a time, he will masquerade. Paul writes about that. He'll masquerade as an angel of light just to, a, to get his nose in the church and, and establish his dark teachings. He comes in dressed like a sheep, but he's a wolf underneath, introducing a little error here and a little error there to lead the church slowly but surely away from God's truth, away from the gospel of salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. That's what happened to the Roman church, right? In the Middle Ages, it, it, it got dark. The gospel went dark. But they're not the only church since Pentecost. Think of what happened in our own history. The Dutch state church of the 19th century, the early 1800s, late 1700s, which was busy obscuring and blocking the gospel with false preaching, which, which persecuted true believers who just wanted to hear the preaching of the Word, who wanted to, to preach the, the truth. They wouldn't let them. That's what Satan did again in the Dutch Reformed churches of the secession in the early 20th century. And in the Presbyterian worlds, not just the Dutch people, the, the, the English, the Presbyterian Church of the United States, the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, the Korean Presbyterian Church. You should read that history sometime. Those three groups in the 1920s and the 1930s, Satan was on fire, sadly, breaking up churches that once bore the marks of the true church. They were slowly infiltrated by the lies of Satan until they were no longer directed by the Lord Jesus. They no longer cared about Christ's will and lordship, and they even turned to attack the true believers who rebuked them for their sins. And if you examine those three churches, I'm just giving a few examples, and also the Dutch churches, you examine the remnants of those churches today, you will find ruins only. Nothing left of the gospel and an open hostility to the truths of Scripture that have been long confessed by the church. To think that the false church just isn't around or it's not going to be an issue is foolish. It's in the Scriptures. We're warned about it. We should therefore not be surprised also when attacks come here in the true church. Satan is merciless with his efforts. He's filled with hatred for Christ. He wants to destroy the church. And Jesus wants us to be on the lookout. The, the seed of the, the serpent, we talked a little bit about that this morning, and the seed of the woman, is, is an, that's an ancient conflict, an ancient battle. It's been unfolding ever since the fall into sin, and it will be here until the Lord Jesus comes back. And where do you think is the main battleground? If you were Satan, where would you attack? Attack in the world? Why would you attack there? You already own the world. All the unbelievers, you've already got them. Oh no, you attack the church. You attack the church. Because that's where you want to gain a victory. So the fight is here. It's, it's in Ancaster Church locally, it's in our federation of churches, it's in every true church across the world. 
It's in your personal life and mine. Satan comes after us one by one. Wherever the kingship of Jesus Christ is honored and obeyed, there Satan will be working to undermine. So we need to be aware. We need to be wise. We need to be attentive to new ideas and check Scripture, whether they deviate these new ideas from the Bible. We need to always ask, are we hearing in this idea, are we hearing the voice of the, the good shepherd, or is it some other voice? A false teacher, maybe. Is the Spirit that speaks, speaking in faithfulness to the Word of the Holy Spirit or not? That's really the main characteristic of the false church. As our confession captures it, the false church assigns more authority to itself and its ordinances than to the Word of God. It bases itself more on men than on Jesus Christ. So the battle, the battle for the church is a spiritual battle in the first place. It's a battle for our hearts using ideas, philosophies, so-called theologies. But brothers and sisters, you can see through the masquerade if you, you hold the ideas you hear to this question, are these things, is this idea based squarely on the Word of God or is it just a human idea? Where is it coming from? So let us beware. Let us be vigilant. But let us not lose our confidence, for Satan and his false church can never overcome. The Bible reveals these teachings to us about the false church and gives us warnings not to cause anxiety, not to make us hit the panic button, no, just the opposite. The Lord Jesus wants us to stand firm on the truth and stand guard against the lie and be vigilant, but He wants us even more to take heart that He Himself has secured the victory. That is the great encouragement of that ancient antithesis that God set in place back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. Remember who it was that established the enmity. That wasn't the devil. And it wasn't us humans, it was the Lord. It was the Lord who drew a line between the devil and us, between the devil's followers and God's followers, and an enmity. That means he, he, he put friction there, fighting, difficulty, tension. But it's a friction, it's a fight with good results. For consider, what would you rather be? Would you rather be a friend of Satan or would you rather be an enemy of Satan? Remember that before God put that enmity there, that antithesis, we humans were friends with the devil. That's what we had done when we believed the lie that he spoke and we ate of the fruit we became friends with the devil and enemies of God. That was our situation. We had joined forces with the evil one, same as what the house of David had done in aligning itself with the house of Ahab, like we've been seeing in the morning sermons. 
we were literally walking with the devil. We were walking with the devil into eternal damnation, and even worse, we liked it that way. We were going to go happily off into damnation. Well, not happily, but we couldn't care less. We were going to go with the devil. But God had mercy on our souls, on our bodies. The Lord God, He pitied us in our stubborn stupidity. And He came down to earth to the garden and He broke up that partnership, that diabolical partnership. He put a line of separation between the devil and us. That's what enmity is. And God brought us back to His side, into His covenant, into His grace, and He did so through the seed, the promise of the seed of the woman, so that we would be with Him into everlasting life. The enmity is a, a way of keeping us from the devil, and though it means short-term pain, a lifetime in this life of battle, it was meant for and will be for our eternal good. A hostility that will end with the devil cast forever into the lake of fire and we brought forever into the presence of the Lord. That is the eternal promise that we can rely on fully. The devil will bruise the heel of Christ and of his people. The Lord said that, but he also said that Christ, the seed of the woman, will crush crush the head of the serpent in victory. And that's what Jesus did when He died on the cross and spilled His blood for your sins and mine. This is why the Lord warns us what to expect in the attacks of Satan and the false church. He doesn't want us to stress out, doesn't want us to tremble in fear, but He wants to fortify us prepare us and have confidence in Him as we go through tough things. He's saying to us, I've got this fight. I really do. He says it loud and clear in Revelation 2 verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Don't be afraid. Yes, says our Lord, I, I, I may allow Satan sift you and to test you. Him and his synagogue, him and his church may well attack you, my people, for a time, but the best they can do is bruise your heel. I have your head protected. Your life, your true life is hidden with me up in heaven above, and it cannot be touched. So look to me, says the Lord. Stay faithful to me. Do not fear. Rest assured that all of my sheep will hear my voice. And they will follow me into the sheepfold. And there will be that one flock in the end. And I will be their one shepherd. And no one shall pluck them out of my hand. Amen.